Chapter 17 Men's minds are so formed that, while they blame a woman for duplicity, they complain far more if she acts openly and allows her feelings to be seen. Emile Gaborio, Caught in the Net, 1913 on a late Friday afternoon in mid-November, Babette excitedly bustles around the kitchen, scanning over her many cookbooks. They boast recipes for cuisine from almost every culture, Basque and Burmese to Italian and East Indian. You know, Ross, this house was formerly quite well known for fabulous dinner parties. I would print up a menu, cook fantastic meals, and invite every friend and colleague. It takes so much energy. With my health, those days are long gone, yet smaller events can still be worthwhile. Tonight, I have invited several students over for supper. There are standout individuals in every class, and I often develop friendships with them. For an instructor to pursue personal relations of that nature is not entirely ethical, but at my age, I don't care. I make the college too much money for them to dismiss me over trivial matters. Oh, look here. From a cupboard, my professor removes two Tupperware containers. They rattle in her shaking hands. She sets them down and pushes one toward me. I open the lid and see clusters of small conical shells. These are snail shells. Now, everyone knows the French adore escargot, but few Americans have eaten it or even know what it looks like. So, years ago, I would go into the yard and collect small garden slugs. I kept them in a plastic container for several days and made sure they consumed only store-bought lettuce. This allowed time to expel pesticides they might have consumed in the wild. Then, once my beauties grew plump and fat, I would season them and place them on a cookie sheet before baking them in the oven. Afterward, I placed these shells on their backs. Voila! Oh, my guests were always very impressed and said they never knew escargot tasted so exquisite. I chuckle. Faux escargot. Just what to expect from Babette. On the counter is a large beef roast. My professor takes olive oil and rubs the meat with both hands, her whole body in motion. After some minutes conducting this massage, she sprinkles salt, pepper, and garlic powder over the top, then dumps the roast into a large orange enameled pot with carrots, turnips, slices of onion, some tomato puree, and cooking wine. She slides it into the oven to simmer. I peel a dozen small potatoes, roll them in oil, and add seasoning salt. The convection oven will make these tidbits a nice crispy side dish. For dessert, I mix up a batch of apple scones from scratch. They take only 20 minutes to bake, so I slip the dough on a cookie sheet into the refrigerator for later. Until then, many chores remain. Several hours later, the main floor is vacuumed, linoleum mopped, and bathroom cleaned. I have our fine china set, and I'm selecting linen napkins to match the tablecloth when Babette pulls me into the kitchen. You are aware of my devious nature by now. Look at this! She reaches into a low cupboard and pulls out an empty wine bottle. It looks incredibly old, the ornate label scripted with faded French characters. This is preserved from an evening long ago, before you were born, certainly. However, it has served usefully many times since. Fetch me a funnel, vite vite. I find a copper funnel and hold it while Babette pours red wine out of a gallon jug down the bottle's neck. You know, Ross, so much that we appreciate in life is complete illusion. If we knew the truth of reality, our lives would become visions of hell. The mind can be so easily influenced by what it perceives rather than physical experience. 
Our guests tonight will believe they enjoy a royal vintage, but it will taste so much sweeter to me as well. Oh, but I hear a knock. It must be them now. Quick, go answer. I hurry to the front door and swing it open. Before me stands Dora, a slim, attractive girl from my academic writing course. She stares at me oddly. I hesitate, but recover. Come inside and warm up. I didn't know you take Dr. Ellsworth's classes. You're our first. She peers around. Don't you mean second? Oh, no. I live here with the professor. It's a long story. Dora shuts the door and smooths short brunette locks. Her face is tan underneath wire-framed spectacles. I open my mouth to speak again, but Babette bursts out of the kitchen. Dora, you absolute dear. I am so glad you made it. Let Ross take your coat and stay a while. Would you like a tour of the house? I'll show you my library if you like. Come this way. Dora passes me her black hoodie, smiles demurely, and follows our professor. A trace of sandalwood marks her passing. I'm still standing, garment in hand, when the doorbell rings and another student arrives. This one is Angela, a blonde woman in her early thirties from my current class with Babette. I guide her into the living room, then scamper away to check on dinner. Delicious odors fill the air. My potatoes are golden brown already, and the roast steams away. From a drawer, I select pink and white napkins, but set them aside as the doorbell rings again. This time, I recognize Faisal, a student from Pakistan who must be well over six feet tall. He towers beside Harmony, a shorter girl with long dark hair who sits behind me in class. I invite them inside, just as Babette returns with Dora in tow and gushes over her new guests. She seats everyone around the dining room table while I bring out hot dishes of food, her face beaming with pleasure. I will not say grace tonight, but only note I am so glad you all have come. It is a true joy to spend time with my favorite students outside of class, and no better way than a wonderful repast together. But where are the serviettes? This table is incomplete. Sorry, I kept getting distracted. Here, let me pass these around. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you. Oh, but wait, I have forgotten something as well. My professor leaps up and almost knocks her chair over. She darts away, then returns, the ancient bottle hoisted like a trophy. Now, here is something special I have saved that we just now opened. But you must, to use the American expression, hold your horses. This is old French wine. It should breathe a moment. A murmur of appreciation buzzes around the table. Oh, Monsieur Ross, would you be a gentleman and poor? I do so, my lips tight. Once every glass is full, and Babette deems the libation adequately ventilated, she stands again, crystal goblet high. Two dear friends, that is all of you, my students, who really are my family. She takes a drink, and we all follow suit. Angela, seated across from me, rapturously closes her eyes. Oh, this is exquisite. Thank you for sharing such a fine wine with us. Everyone else voices agreement. My professor lifts her hand with generous acknowledgement. To me, she gives a sly wink. I shake my head. Dora is seated on my left, and I pass her salad in a gold-rimmed bowl after helping myself. Faisal skewers several potatoes, then gestures at Napoleon III's goateed bust on the china cabinet. Who is that man? he asks, English slightly accented. Babette sets down her fork and pauses, chewing. Once the mouthful of beef is swallowed, she radiates delight. 
That is the hill of France, Napoleon, though not perhaps the one you expect. I more admire his nephew, Napoleon III, never as famous. He still long outlasted Napoleon Bonaparte in power. It was no military genius like his uncle's that allowed such longevity, but simple political shrewdness and persistence. We may celebrate Napoleon I's sensational battlefield victories, but I measure real leadership success by years maintaining total control. Angela frowns. He was good at being a dictator? Is that what you mean? I set down my fork. Come on, you've all heard the lectures. It's no surprise our professor loves strong men. Well, and strong women. Babette smirks. I don't know what you mean. Our democratic form of government is unparalleled and stimulates an absolute fountainhead of human virtue. Perhaps my accent has occasionally caused confusion. Angela laughs. Oh, Dr. Ellsworth, we know you don't mean any harm. Go ahead and finish that story. You've always got something to dish on everyone. Well, since you mention it, Napoleon III was not only a political throng man, as Ross observed, but quite notorious for predation among young ladies. Even amidst high society, where such behavior is commonly accepted, his sexual excesses raised eyebrows. Supposedly, he even employed a special personal secretary to handle the complicated scheduling of his many twists. Our guests focus on her, plates loaded with food as our professor revels in every tawdry detail. I glance over at Dora. She sits mesmerized, then notices my attention, and smiles. Conversation next switches to college gossip. Harmony mentions a particular instructor on campus. She tips back her wine and blushes. Oh, whenever we talk, it always seems like he might be flirting with me. Babette grins. Yes, he is rather notorious among my colleagues. There were rumors of an affair with a student years ago that caused some domestic troubles. I understand his wife could be quite small-minded about such things. Everyone laughs. By now, most of the food has vanished. I stack tableware covered with meat juice and salad dressing. My professor hands me her plate. Does anyone have room for dessert? Ross baked a batch of his delicious apple scones. They are done by now, we? I nod and retreat to the kitchen. Dora follows, a couple dishes in hand. You needn't do that, I say, and take them from her. Go, sit, you're our guest. I'd like to help. So, tell me, is Dr. Ellsworth a relative? I'm very curious. No, we're not related, but please, enjoy yourself. I've got cleanup under control. If you like, though, we can talk later. Do you have plans this evening? It's still early. No, only coming here. Her eyes shimmer up at me. I may go downtown later. There's a new gothic night called Sanctuary at Moody's, which has a pretty decent dance floor. They play good death rock and stuff. Would you be into that? Yeah, sounds fun. Been a while since I made it out dancing. Right on. Actually, you could bring dessert out for me. I hand her a clean plate, and using a spatula, fill it with scones, still steaming from the oven. She returns to the table where our guests laugh as Babette recounts an anti-Russian joke from 1950s Poland. I've heard that one at least twice, but still chuckle. Once the dishes are dry and put away, I leave a couple pots to soak overnight and pour a final glass of wine. Its taste is unremarkable, 
The students savor richness on a label. As for Babette, thrills of deception fill her goblet. By 8.30, Angela, Faisal, and Harmony have left, but Dora and my professor remain seated, deep in conversation. I clear a few last items off the table and collect soiled serviettes to throw down the laundry chute. Oh, Ross, Babette intones sonorously as she rises. You don't mind giving this girl a ride home, do you? She took the bus here, and it is very cold outside. I am exhausted after so much wondrous excitement. Thank you for help with everything. Dor, you are an absolute jewel. I have enjoyed your company tonight. Until next time, I bid you adieu. As my professor makes for the staircase, her voice lowers near my ear. Quite an Aphrodite, is she not? She ascends with slow footsteps. I glance at Dora. My chores are pretty much done. I just need to change clothes and we can head out. Downstairs in the pantry, I select a fresh undershirt and pull on camouflage pants with black braces. I stuff these into combat boots, then select a gray mechanic shirt and dark brown hoodie. Back in the living room, I discover Dora standing before Babette's oil painting of the Chateau de Lac. She turns as I approach. What is this? Some kind of castle? Oh, more of a French mansion, really. I hardly know where to begin. Before we go, could you tell if my braces are even? I unbutton my shirt and hold it open. Dora draws near and runs delicate fingers down each strap. Soft breath rushes against my cheek. She adjusts one side slightly, then steps back. Perfect. Mind stopping at my place so I can change as well? Sure. Where around do you live? Just north of 11th and Division. Oh, cool. Do you want to just walk from there? It's a short distance and the night is clear. That would be nice. Let's do it. We drive until Dora points out a parking spot under thick trees on a residential street. I follow her upstairs to an incense-scented studio in a rundown boarding house. While she changes, I scan book titles along a wooden shelf. The room is small but cozy with soft lighting and wall draperies. Dishes line up on a drying rack and Dora's bed is made with plaid flannel sheets. When the bathroom door opens, it reveals her lithe figure wrapped in a tight black dress above scuffed Doc Martens. What you got there? she asks. Oh, I shut a thin hardback and place it on her nightstand. I was checking out your book of lyrics by The Cure. It's funny to see just now. Their song, Killing an Arab, is based on The Stranger by Camus. He's one of Babette's favorites. Perhaps someday I'll play that one for her. Dora grins. You should. Well, I'm ready. Shall we go? There's so much more I want to know about Dr. Ellsworth. So, you call her Babette? On the walk downtown, I tell her about Babette's new doorway greeting, our trips together, and the story of her childhood in France. She peppers me with questions, and I'm so distracted we almost walk past the entrance to Moody's. Deep bass vibrates the pavement, and a sidewalk sign with large Gothic-style lettering reads, Sanctuary. A doorman checks our IDs, and we enter a large, elegant room. The ambiance is dim, and small intimate tables surround a wide hardwood dance floor. It's only a little after ten, so much seating remains open. Portland goths rarely dress as well as those I remember from Seattle, and most here prefer faded band shirts under patched hoodies with combat or lineman's boots. Still, several in attendance wear extravagant makeup, corsets, vintage suits, and other finery. We pick up cocktails at the bar and select a table far enough from the speakers to hear each other talk. Dora's petite face leans close, her features illuminated by candles in a red glass bowl between us. Keep going, she urges. Tell me more. 
Her eyes widen as I describe Zenaid visiting the crypt and weeping over her dead children in their glass coffins, but the music abruptly changes. My foot taps uncontrollably. We can talk more later. No one ever plays dance or die. I gotta do this one. The dance floor has plenty of room, and I stomp away with wild abandon. Psychoburbia is a fast song, and my euphoria so great, it takes a few moments before I notice Dora near me. Despite heavy boots, she is silken poetry, bending and floating, driftwood on a dark ocean. Her eyes are closed, lips parted, and she moves as if rushing beats are mere eddies in the current of a stream she's known forever. I can't take my eyes off her. Several tracks later, we take a break and sit down. I tip back my drink, and melted ice cube slush brings reality back. Dora beams, errant locks of hair stuck to her forehead. Watch my purse a moment, okay? She stands up and heads toward the women's room. A dapper-suited man, sitting alone at the next table, eyes her passing, then salutes me. He stands and approaches. Excuse me, but I must ask, is that your girlfriend? He smiles, a handsome fellow, his mien sincere. I swallow hard. Well, yes. His eyebrows arch. Just curious. She is amazing, but you already know that. You are very lucky. He walks away toward the bar. I sigh. Babette would enjoy even such a small deception, but my stomach knots with anxiety. Soon Dora returns and we continue our discussion, but the lie hangs heavily around my shoulders. Tales of Babette's antics that sprang so fluidly before now clot with deceit in my throat. Later we dance again and, after final drinks, exit into the night. It's well past 1am. I walk closer this time and our sleeves brush together in darkness. We cross over the Willamette River, still deep in conversation. Underneath the Hawthorne Bridge, slow water reflects yellow moonlight. The air around us is cool and crisp. Sorry to talk your ears off, I apologize. I know I'm not the only one in this town having adventures. So, you're from New Jersey, then? Yeah, I came out a couple years ago. My mother moved here as well. In fact, we work at the same bar. That's gotta be kinda awkward. At times, yes. She needs a lot of attention, and I'm trying to be a good daughter, but it's tough. That's one reason I enjoy school. It's a good excuse for my own time. Plus, I've been working weekends out at an organic farm. That's what I love most right now. The smell of the fields after it rains, a first cup of coffee early in the morning, and then how my muscles ache by evening, but I don't care. God, it's a whole different life. We pass beneath a street lamp, and Dora's face shines with joy in the sodium glow. My heart surges. I want to take her into my arms, but hesitate. She is so perfect, touching her would almost seem a profane act. Our boots clatter along the bridge and further into southeast Portland. At Dora's apartment, we pause. Babette's car is parked nearby. I fumble in my pocket for keys. Do you want to come in for some tea and warm up? She asks. Your stories haven't bored me yet. Absolutely. We go inside and Dora sets a pot of water boiling. After our tea has steeped, she sits on the edge of her bed and sips daintily. I recline against puffy, tasseled cushions on the floor and tell of Babette's mysterious Canadian convent, the old Rajneeshpuram compound, and the Yakima symphony. Dora's brown eyes fixate me through steam above her cup's rim. At last, the wall clock ticks past 2.30 in the morning. Reluctantly, I get to my feet. I really should go. Dora stretches. Yeah, it is pretty late. But thanks, this has been... 
a really special night. Her voice hesitates slightly. If you like, I'll walk you out. We trudge over wet grass. It sparkles under a street lamp that flickers across soft black hollows up and down the block. At Babette's car, Dora stands very close. She looks down, tender features almost obscured in shadow. For a moment, it seems she might turn away, and I reach out. Her hip presses against my palm, and the next second I pull her to me. A guy back at the club asked if you were my girlfriend. I told him yes, I confess in her ear. She laughs. I'm glad. You know, it was pretty much over once you let me touch your suspenders. Our lips meet in kiss after kiss. Her warm shoulder muscles relax as we hold together. Sandalwood fills my nostrils and bliss engulfs us under dark hanging leaves. I am immediately in love. 